Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. You thought the flu was through? Oh, no. There's another round on the way. Don Webster will be here to tell us about that. We're also going to talk about blood clot awareness. Cassandra Coleman and Dr. David Greenwald will be here. But first, we introduce you to Annette Calderon and Audrey Kunfer. They are both involved in the Collaborative Nursing Network of Northeast Pennsylvania. They have a program coming up. Let's find out about it. The Collaborative Nursing Network of Northeast Pennsylvania um, is actually um, a partnership of four uh, nursing organizations. Um, each of these organizations um, are um, housed within local universities. Okay, and um, it's actually through uh, Sigma Theta Tau, International Honor Society of Nursing, the chapters uh, of this organization, of this umbrella organization, uh, is um, the four chapters are derived from the Sigma Theta Tau, from Sigma Theta Tau uh, International. Uh, The chapters are located at Marywood University, Misericordia University, University of Scranton, and Wilkes University. So these are the four sponsoring organizations. And uh, basically, we have representatives from all of the organizations on the planning committee, and we um, develop a continuing, an annual continuing education program. Why would someone want to get involved with your organization? Is it mandatory? Oh, no, absolutely not mandatory at all. Um, actually, what we're trying to do is provide a program, an annual um, educational program for nurses. Um, generally, uh, we publicize in Luzerne, Lackawanna, Wyoming counties. Um, Certainly there are people who come from other counties to the program if it's an interest. We publicize statewide Mm. through our nursing organizations through Pennsylvania, um, PSNA, Pennsylvania Nurses uh, State Association, and uh, also through Sigma Theta Tau International. So we regionally advertise as well, which goes beyond the three counties. And basically, we want to attract, open it up to nurses, um, to nurses who are in service, um, who are staff nurses, uh, community health nurses, uh, nurses who work in doctor's offices. Um, There's a wide array of 
of venues mm-hmm. that nurses are involved in. And um, nurse educators, uh, we, on our planning committee, we primarily have uh, people from staff nursing as well as from uh, faculty positions. Um, and so we're able to um, reach out to a large uh, audience. When you talk about the different um, schools that you're involved in in the area, so just so we're clear, you must be a nurse in order to be involved in your organization. Yes, uh, we we attract nurses, but we also attract students. Ah. We're trying to draw awesome. students into these programs also. Uh, We've been doing that from the beginning because we want the students to see the benefits of collaboration, first of all. This is a collaborative nursing network. And so working with four individual chapters, um, but we have a large array of students who attend these programs, but we're not restricted to just these four programs. we attract many of the nurses and faculty, nursing faculty, and um, also students from Luzerne County Community College, and um, and other uh, uh, educational institutions in the area. Um, but we're working with these four chapters in the planning of a program. Okay. Let okay, but we're not restricted at all to in who comes in. To who comes. And the more uh, the merrier. Yes. And we have generally had uh attendance of over a hundred every year. That's great. You know, yeah. So it's been it's been a very positive experience. But uh certainly we want to attract students. To these programs. So even before they get their RN, sure. you want them to come in and learn as much as they can. Yeah, absolutely. All absolutely. Right. That's why I'd like to bring Audrey in. I guess one of my major questions when I look at something like nursing, I've been hearing so much in the news lately that the nursing majors are actually becoming less than they were Years ago, are you finding that? Less, less in numbers? In, less in numbers, yeah. Um, I think as the age of students that is old enough to be in college gets to be that age, maybe the population of that generation is smaller than previous generations. I think that might have something to do with it. But nursing is hard. I mean, they have to maintain a certain GPA. They have to take certain call or high school classes to get into college. Um, and once they get into uh, the major, whatever school they go to, they might decide, oh, maybe this isn't for me. So generally, the class that starts is bigger than the class that actually graduates. So I can't say they're significantly smaller yet, but it's 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 a very hard, challenging major. So the people that do it have to, you know, be academically inclined and science inclined and be willing to make the sacrifice to to achieve their goals. As uh, as Annette was talking before about going to different programs, having the opportunity to be out there and see, do you find then, Audrey, that 
giving students the opportunity to get in there, get their hands wet, see what's going on. You know, I don't think they have anything like candy stripers anymore, do they? So a candy striper was basically a volunteer, and no, I can't say I saw them as much. I was a candy striper when I was in high school, but no, I don't think that those kind of volunteer opportunities exist as much anymore. So you don't see that when you're younger. Right. You're not in. Right, right. And it's 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 true. I don't think people realize exactly what nurses do. I always encourage them. They used to also do shadowing, but because of HIPAA laws, you know, they don't allow people to do that anymore. So I think the more experience they get, you know, whether they go to be a nurse, uh, nurse's aide, work in a nursing home, work in a hospital, I think that's a really great experience to help them get the flavor of what a nurse actually does and let them see what a nurse actually does because it's kind of an analogous kind of thing, like, oh, they take care of people. Like, that's what most people say, but what is really the nitty-gritty of what they do is a different story. When we see all of the, just like in so many police situations, fire situations, what you see on TV. Isn't necessarily what the reality is. Absolutely, yes. When we're we're talking about um, the reality of uh, the nursing career, again, a lot of times people will think of things in a different way. Are you honest? I try to be honest when people come in for tours at our school. I try to say, you know, it's it's this isn't a, an easy major. It's hard and you know, it's going to require a lot of time management. It's going to require a lot of organization. And you know, I don't know, sometimes they may not hear that, but I do say, you know, this is requires a lot of dedication and um, a lot of science, you know, nutrition, a lot of uh, prerequisite type of courses till they get to, you know, the actual nursing and even the nursing classes, when they start getting into those heavily, it, it's still quite a shock to the students and, and it's a lot. Do you also find that in this era, there are more interested not in maybe RN, but in PA? We do. I think a nurse practitioner, you know, would be another uh, same level of... Uh, Physician's assistant. Yes, yeah. same, a nurse practitioner and, and a PA would be equivalent. But yeah, they might have an eye on the bigger picture, even a nurse anesthetist and a nurse midwife. Mm-hmm. Um, they, But I don't know, you know, there, there's a lot of physical work involved with being a registered nurse, and they may or may not realize that either mm-hmm. um, th- when they get into clinical. So that's another part of the education is it's not just going to school. There's a clinical component where they have to go to the hospital and um, the state requires us to have so many hours there. Um, So that really opens up their eyes too as to what this involves more. And they usually don't get to that till like spring of sophomore year, definitely fall of junior year is when they really are Mm -hmm. immersed in that clinical experience. And that's why they have to start paying attention and getting as much information as they can. Let me bring Annette back over here and I'm going to have you talk about the program that you have coming up, mm-hmm. that you don't want just nurses there mm-hmm. or nurses from this area, but you want the students, you want all of the people that are interested because this is continuing education credits, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, the collaborative over a period of years has been um, providing uh, contact hours uh, through Pennsylvania State Nurses Association. And, um, you know, it's always contingent upon approval, but we did receive approval uh, from the state for this upcoming program um, uh, being that is scheduled for April 16th. It's a Tuesday. And um, the title of the program is Professional Licensure Essentials, Protecting Your Nursing Livelihood. Um, and we are very fortunate to have a nurse attorney who will be uh, the featured speaker. Um, her name is Edith Browse, Esquire, PC. And um, Edie has been doing, uh, has been a nurse attorney for quite a number of years. And uh, she is in private practice where she concentrates in professional licensure representation, medical malpractice defense, and nursing advocacy. Um, she is admitted uh, to practice before the bars of the state courts of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, the Southern and Eastern Districts of New York federal courts, and the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and she's a member of many bar associations and nursing organizations and was actually the 2011 president of the American Association of Nurse Attorneys. She is a nurse and an attorney? Oh, yeah. You see, this is another avenue that nurses have. You go to law school. You become, you're a nurse first, and then, well, I shouldn't say that. Some may be attorneys coming into nursing. Her, she had extensive clinical and managerial experience in OR emergency and critical care nursing. She has a law degree from Fordham University School of Law and holds a master's degree in public health and critical care nursing from Columbia University uh, and has held numerous um, adjunct faculty roles. Wow. So um, Either she hasn't slept in all <laughs> yeah. these years or she started when she was 12, <laughs> but I'm impressed. Oh, yeah. Wow. You see, yeah, nurse attorneys, as we have, you know, nurse practitioners, we have nurse attorneys, uh, we have obviously our staff nurses, our community health nurses. There's so many avenues that nursing uh, provides. So, and there's nothing... Nothing precludes um, an individual from going into various areas of nursing. Well, that and these are all part of the nursing profession. It's, it's just a wonderful um, opportunity. You know, for just to people. hear someone like her speak is is worth the students being there. We are attempting as a planning committee to encourage students to attend this, especially since they all will be going, especially the, the graduating mm -hmm. uh, seniors uh, in any of the nursing programs, um, this topic of nurse licensure is extremely important, mm -hmm. and it gets very complex. And you don't hear about that as much as you hear about the malpractice with doctors. Yeah. But it does uh, exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, nursing is as 
is quite involved in that arena also. Oh, absolutely. So how do they get in touch with uh, you folks in order to um, make a... Re- and when do the reservations have to be in? Well, uh, first of all, uh, the program will be offered at Holiday Inn, which was formerly the East Mountain Inn and Suites on East End Boulevard in Wilkesbury. We have a website, actually, uh, that already has our brochure posted on it, and that is www. in lowercase collaborative nursing network uh, If you are having any difficulty with getting online, you can contact Audrey. Uh, at 570-674-1480 for any information uh, regarding the program, and she can direct you. Yeah, Registration will be required uh, before you come uh, to the program. Uh, we have a buffet dinner and program that is, uh, we're charging $40 for that. And here again, you don't have to attend the buffet dinner. Um, there is the program that's available only, and that would be for RNs, it's $15 to attend, and for students, it's $5 to attend. There you go. And again, registration is required beforehand and payment. And when does this have to be in by? This has to be in by April 5th. April 5th, okay. The date is Tuesday, April 16th. So 6 to 7 is the buffet dinner, 7 to 9 will be the program. And again, that's at the Holiday Inn. And um, you can acquire um, a brochure online at www.collab. O R A T I V E N U R S I N G N E T W O R K N E P A dot com. Thanks again to Annette Calderon and Audrey Kunfer for joining us today and telling us about the Collaborative Nursing Network of Northeast Pennsylvania, as well as their upcoming program. Now, don't go away. What do you know about blood clots? We're going to meet a young lady who found out more than she ever expected and one of the team members who helped her through it on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. March is Blood Clot Awareness Month, but they can happen anytime, anywhere, to anyone of any age. And Cassandra Coleman is here to tell us about that. She's a special advisor to the office of Governor Tom Wolf. Along with her, we welcome Dr. David Greenwald. He is a medical oncologist hematologist, and he was part of the team that got Cassandra through something she never expected. Cassandra, you are involved in so many different things. Once served as a mayor in the borough of Exeter. Yes. And... You're here today to talk about something that I would not expect. You're here to talk about your experience with blood clots. At 24. Wow. How did this happen? 
So I actually had um, um, multiple knee surgeries throughout my life. Um, and I had had one, a, a replace, excuse me, a full reconstruction in November of 2011. After the knee surgery, um, wasn't feeling right. A uh, little bit of more pain than I had had in the past couple. I had four prior to that. Um, just wasn't feeling right. Went back. You know, they ended up going in again um, in January of 2012. Um, again, after that surgery, they thought that that would fix the pain. They thought that that would be an immediate fix. It was not. Um, still continued to feel the way that I felt. Just didn't feel right. And I think that's the best way to describe it. You know your own body. Mm -hmm. um, you know when you just don't feel right. Um, so actually March 13th of 2012, um, I wasn't feeling good, uh, the week leading up more so than it, it was in the past, uh, my phone rang, I jumped out of bed to answer it. And when I went to answer, I realized I couldn't breathe. So I, I will never forget. I went downstairs and I looked in the mirror of the bathroom and I'll know I had a gray shirt on and I just remember the sweat pouring off of me. Like I had a shower head over my head. Um, and it just kept the, the sweat mark just kept getting deeper and deeper into my shirt. And I, you know, I was 24. I didn't know what blood clots were. I, that was not even on my mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my mind, I remember I kept thinking, I have pneumonia. I have pneumonia. Um, so I ended up getting rushed to the hospital. It was there at the hospital that um, the doctor had come in and said to my father, um, you know, we're going to run a few tests. We have to rule out blood clots. And I'll never forget my father's face at that point because I, I always say I had a lot of support growing up with my both of my parents. My mom is more nervous. My father's more stoic. You know, he doesn't show emotion often. But I remember him looking at the doctor straight in the face and he said, she's 24. She doesn't have blood clots. Exactly. And the doctor said, no, no, we just have to we have to rule it out. So I remember going back and getting the different scans and coming back. And it was like, you know, when you're waiting in the ER, a lot of times there's a lot of long wait. This was no wait. They were back with these tests. I mean, within minutes of me getting back to my and holding. And scary. Oh, that was extremely scary. <laughs> so the doctor walked back in and I remember her looking my father in the eyes and saying, well, what we thought we were trying to rule out is actually what's wrong. And my father just looked at her and she said, and we stopped counting at six. And I remember his face just dropping. And that was when I knew that it was serious. So they had started me on heparin. They had taken me up to ICU. Um, but the problem was they weren't dissipating. They were not breaking up, no matter what they gave Where me. Where were they? Um, in my lungs. I was 100% blocked in one lung and over 80% blocked in the other. Um, so they started giving me TPA. They gave me everything that they thought would try to get these things to break up, um, and they weren't. So I'll never forget that was the night that you know folks had a conversation with my parents to say we're not sure there's anything else we could do. Um, for a fast forward, um, I spent 46 days in a hospital total. I ended up down at Penn, mm. um, and you know I, I ended up coming out. Uh, obviously, I had lost a lot of my strength. I had lost. I had different issues down there where I'd coded a few times. Um, but, you know, here I am. Um, and that's, you know, something that's it's important to me to raise awareness because folks like me had no idea it can happen to anybody. You know, they, it, 
blood clots don't discriminate mm-hmm. age, gender, ethnicity, nothing mm-hmm. happen at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, something that's important to me is what I've always shared is be your own best advocate. If I knew what I knew back then, I would have fought to have more testing. I would have fought that. And, and you know, not that there aren't great medical professionals and I'm here with one today, mm-hmm. but you know, I would have fought harder for myself and been my been a better advocate for myself. And that's part of the problem with health. Yes. Is that you don't know until it happens. And speaking of that uh, medical professional, we're going to bring Dr. David Greenwald in here, who is a hematologist oncologist. Dr. Greenwald, first of all, welcome. And can you explain a little bit about this blood clot situation? Yes, I can. And it's something that we see patients every week, two or three every week in the hospital. Fortunately, most patients we diagnose at the stage when they have what's called a deep vein thrombosis. They have a blood clot, usually in the lower extremity. It can happen in pelvic blood vessels as well, pelvic veins. Uh, Unfortunately, Cassandra was at the stage where those clots were breaking off and going through the venous system and they get filtered out in the pulmonary arteries. And uh, anything can happen from just being uh, mildly short short of breath that can go on for weeks to an absolute catastrophe. There's something called a saddle embolus that just blocks both pulmonary arteries and can be fatal within minutes. Wow. How long does it take for these blood clots to form? Because, again, Cassandra, 24 years old, healthy, all of a sudden just boom, short of breath. Well, she had uh, uh, some predisposing factors in her particular case, the knee surgery, which is fairly common. Any surgery to the lower extremity, uh, hip, knee, or ankle, makes patients inactive. And uh, the blood in the veins gets back to the heart by muscle contractions. The veins do not pulsate like arteries, and so blood stagnates if you're inactive. Mm -hmm. And that sets up for getting the the clots in the lower extremities, and as they propagate, as they grow, as more blood clot collects, the risk the uh, forward end of the clot will break off, and as I said, it gets filtered out in the lung. And uh, if it happens rapidly, uh, you get multiple pulmonary emboli and you suddenly can't breathe. And it's, uh, it's very serious. Uh, she's a fantastic story of survival, but unfortunately not everyone can survive. But there's several uh, aspects when we see patients in the hospital. One is first the diagnosis and blood clots can masquerade as heart attacks, pneumonia, any respiratory problem. So you have to have a high index of suspicion. Uh, Once you make that diagnosis, then there's treatment. And we always try to look for the cause. Mm -hmm. In fact, we divide blood clots when we approach a patient in terms of diagnosis. Is there a provocation? Are they provoked by surgery, by medications, birth control pills, hormone replacement therapy. There's a few drugs that increase the risk. Uh, People with malignancies have a higher risk of of clotting. Uh, Pregnant uh, women, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a state of high estrogen that uh, leads to clotting, plus 
an enlarging uterus puts pressure on veins and so forth. So there are some obvious predisposing factors. And then there are patients who we just have no provocation. We don't know why. You know, you take a history. They haven't had a long trip in an airplane or an automobile where they're inactive. Uh, they haven't had orthopedic surgery. They don't take medication. And so then we start to search. There are people that inherit certain uh, abnormalities that make them at higher risk for developing blood clots. Wow. Now, again, I said my husband has had blood clots, and he was one of those who called me as I was on my way home from work one day, and I said, how was work today? And he said, oh, I didn't go to work. I'm at the ER, and I have blood clots. Well, how did this happen? Well, I started feeling like I was short of breath on my way to work this morning. Now, we had come back from a car trip maybe week, two weeks before, where we drove to Vermont. but the And the doctors said, you know, you stopped, you got out, you walked around. Talk about a roll of the dice. You don't know. No, you don't know. I mean, some patients can develop a clot just riding in a car for an hour. Wow. And other people take 12-hour airplane rides and rarely get up and, and never form a clot. Yeah. There's, there's a system in our body that constantly is in balance, constantly uh, ready to clot if there's any injury, trauma, just to prevent bleeding. And at the same time, you can't have uh, small clots going into small vessels in the brain or the heart. So there's a system that's constantly dissolving the clots. Mm -hmm. And anything can throw that out of balance. So there are people that have a higher risk of bleeding and many people have a higher risk of clotting. All right, let's bring Cassandra back over here, and we're going to talk a little bit about the predisposition because you mentioned the fact that you had all the surgeries mm -hmm. and that during that time, now again, you're 24, mm -hmm. and you're recovering. Are you getting any type of, were you doing exercises? Were you? Did, so, did anybody mention anything like this to you? So no one ever mentioned blood clots. Um, I obviously went through physical therapy the same way anyone would go through physical therapy after a knee surgery. And it was actually through that physical therapy that I, and I'll, again, another thing I'll never forget is coming out of a physical therapy appointment and getting in my mother's car because I wasn't able to drive and just crying. And she had said to me, like, what is wrong? And I said, something's not right. I, the pain is just so much more than it has this been. This was pre-blood clot. This was pre-blood clot. Okay. Um, you know, and I had kept saying, like, something's not right. And granted, I I was, you know, after the surgery, after the, you know, five days or four days at whatever it was that, you know, you have to stay off off of it. Um, I started therapy the same way I had started therapy for my previous surgeries. And that's, I think, why... I knew something was wrong, too, just because of having those experiences with the previous surgeries. Now, if this was my first surgery, mm. you know, what do you, I didn't know what, I wouldn't have known what to expect. But yeah. I, that's why I think I was so, um, you know, bent on the fact that there was something wrong. Um, and, you know, the other thing that we had talked about, and I'm very open about this, was, you know, there was concerns. I was 24. I was a year away from getting married. Ah. Um, you know, there was concerns about having children. 
Um, and, you know, they had down a pen, had ruled my clot provoked. I had done every t- test and study to show that there was no underlying blood issue. Um, but, you know, it was so severe that, you know, they had talked about what the implications would be if I ever became pregnant. Um, and, you know, it's because of folks like Dr. Greenwald and Dr. Pisesky who, you know, worked with me and came up with, you know, a anticoagulation regimen that I had to go through and I had to be successful on before even thinking about having a child. And then throughout my pregnancy, had to be monitored very closely. I always say I was even above high risk. Um, but you know what? I have a four and a half year old healthy baby boy. Oh, you better um, say hi to him. <laughs> <laughs> and hi, Jimmy. <laughs> and, you know, and th- it's thanks to great medical professionals that I'm here. I'm able to have I was able to have Jimmy and I'm able to be here and just raise awareness of something that affects so many people and you don't realize that until mm-hmm. you start talking to folks and you know and a, a number that was just staggering I, I do some work with the National Blood Clot Alliance after they had run my story and everything else and 274 people a day die from a blood clot in the United States. So that was more than AIDS, breast cancer, and car accidents. Absolutely. That's a crazy number. Okay. Dr. Greenwald, when we're talking about the numbers, and as Cassandra just mentioned, they are so high, is a blood clot an aneurysm? No. No. no okay. No. An aneurysm usually occurs in an artery, and it's a weakness in the wall of the artery so that the pressure in the artery makes that area balloon out. Oh, okay. And that has the risk of rupturing or what's called a dissection when the lining of the artery separates from the wall because it's a weak area. So it's not something that's that's clogging like the no. clot is, It's no. but it is something that... Aneurysms it, rupture. Rupture. It's a weakness in the wall of, the, of an artery. So now here you have someone who... And on a regular diagnosis, Cassandra mentioned heparin, first yes. thing that, that you go to. Is that always the first thing? It still is when patients have pulmonary emboli. If they have just a clot in the leg, a thrombosis, which is the precursor for developing the blood clots in the lung, you don't necessarily need heparin. The reason we use heparin is because it works immediately. And uh, there may be some effects just on the lung vasculature where it relaxes it and it makes it easier to breathe. But we have all types of of anticoagulants at the moment. Warfarin. Warfarin's (laughs) an old one. People always refer to it as rat poison because it's used in rat poison. Yes, it is. But they're... Uh, warfarin is is a complicated drug. It works through the liver by pre- preventing the uh, uh, clotting proteins factors, we call them, uh, that are involved in the clot. I always explain to my patients that a blood clot's like cement, where you need water, powder, and stones. With a blood clot, the plasma is the water, the powder are your plasma proteins, and the stones are platelets. Let's back up there just a tad, because when you talk about blood clots in the legs, a lot of people also have edema, where the leg will balloon out through liquid. Immediately, 
I think, a blood clot. But that's not something that normally is, but it shouldn't be just sloughed off and said it's probably just water gain. Well, it's always part of the differential, particularly if there's swelling just in one leg. You can get blood clots in both legs because it's the same predisposing factors, but if you have unilateral swelling, that would push a, a, a blood clot or a thrombosis higher on the list. There's usually discomfort in the calf associated or in the thigh. The pain follows the, uh, the, the blood, the vein, the, the path of the vein through the mid-calf along the inner thigh to the groin. So if there's pain along that, that pathway, uh, then that's, again, a high index of suspicion that you have a blood clot. Okay. But any swollen leg today, it's so easy with what we call a ultrasound or Doppler, mm-hmm. where the leg is compressed, it compresses the blood vessels, and, and just with a microphone, you can uh, see blood flow. Uh, it's easy to diagnose. So, again, uh, any swollen leg should be evaluated for a blood clot. Cassandra, I can understand why someone like Dr. Greenwald, you want it by your side. He explains everything so well. Absolutely. And you can tell that the compassion in his voice. Now, what happened to you? Obviously, you have Jimmy. You look fantastic. You're out and doing all kinds of things. What are you doing in order to, because I don't know about you, but I'd be scared. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, obviously staying active living a healthier lifestyle with food, but also, again, moving, Um, going to the gym. I've taken up running, Um, you know, but I have to say, like, this... This is something that's always in the back of my mind, the slightest pain, the slightest, you know, especially, you know, even and again, even when I'm running or something after and I know that, you know, I'm huffing and puffing or whatever else, like it's just it's always in the back of my mind wondering what's that pain? Should I get checked? Should I? And to be honest, for probably the first I'm going on seven years, actually, it was just seven years on the 13th, um, probably for the first two, three, four years. There was a lot of calls to doctor's offices. Mm-hmm. I mean, just because I was scared. And that's why it's nice to have someone, to have like someone who understands that. Agreed. Now, from the patient's perspective, if anyone out there has questions, who did you turn to? Give us a little bit of information on that in case anyone else would like to go to a website or a Facebook page. So what I found when I finally you know, knew what was going on, when I got out um, and I started my recovery, one thing I found was there was a lot of resources from the National um, Blood Clot Alliance. They have a Facebook page. They have an Instagram. They have a website. Um, they pump out information daily. Um, there's also support groups. Um, and again, they are very knowledgeable. They have doctors on staff. Um, but again, I think too, you know, if, if you're questioning that something's wrong, you should talk to your medical professional. Um, and again, you need to be your own best advocate and you need to fight if you think something is truly wrong. You better say hi to Jimmy again. Mm -hmm. Hi, Jimmy. (laughs) Thanks again to Cassandra Coleman and Dr. David Greenwald for joining us today. And while we're talking health, yep. The flu is still around. More to come on Special Edition. 
Welcome back to Special Edition. Spring arrived this week, so you would think that the flu season would be over, but not so. Dawn Webster, physician's assistant and assistant medical director with MedExpress in Pittsburgh, tells us it's still here. Dawn, always a pleasure, although I don't like the fact that we're still talking about the flu. What is this, round two? No, it is actually still the original flu season. It hit a little bit later this year, and it's still going. Oh, is it the same strain? Can Does this mean we have to get more flu shots, different flu shots? What are we doing? No, no, it's still the same. So it's the 2018-2019 flu strain. And it's actually a mild one this year. I mean, we're pretty lucky, but it did hit us a little bit later, um, and it's still unfortunately kind of going going around. When we're talking about the flu, and again, as you mentioned, the fact that it's still going around, why is that? So the flu can actually keep going as long as, you know, May or June even. Um, And it's a combination of factors. So it did definitely have a slower start. And a slower start means it's not going to be spread as rapidly. So, you know, when it hits everyone really hard in December, everyone kind of gets it and then it's over um, a lot quicker. But because it didn't start until later, it's still going. And fortunately, it is a mild, milder version, which means the flu shot that they did have this year did match it pretty well. Um, So the people that did get the flu shot, even if they still get the flu, their symptoms are much less severe. When we talk about getting things like flu shots and vaccines, and do they carry on into the summertime or do they wear off? So they typically do wear off. Um, You know, they they say that they're most effective for the flu shots, for the yearly flu shots, they're most effective the first six months after you get it, and then they do start to wear off. But they, they don't wear off completely, and they actually can probably cover even into the next year if any of the strains are the same. Now that we're looking at the fact that this, this flu is still around, could it be that it might end up getting a little bit stronger because of the fact that maybe there are more strains coming together? Um, I guess that's a possibility, but probably not likely. To be honest, if I had to, to guess or speculate, I would say that we are, you know, nearing the end of it. And if anything, it should start to, to lessen up, not get worse. All right. Now, somebody in your position who sees patients at MedExpress, so you have people of all different shapes and sizes and coming in and saying to you, Dawn, I'm, I'm just not feeling as well today as I did yesterday, but I don't know, is it flu or is it allergies? Because that's starting up now, too. It sure is, absolutely. So one of the biggest signs of the flu, um, besides the fever, because the fever is number one, is body aches. So someone with allergies, they may have a runny nose, a sore throat, but they're not going to have those awful body aches that someone with the flu has, and they're not going to have the fever either. So a lot of times it is, you know, just by talking to them, we can kind of rule certain things out. But we also have a flu test that we can do to make sure it is the flu and get them started on the right medicine. And what happens if someone says, well, I have these body aches and I, I you know, I, I have a, a little bit of a fever, but sometimes that happens when the allergy season starts up because everybody's symptoms are different. So when you're looking at somebody like that, 
and they're really in flu denial. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what what happens to someone like that when you start to medicate yourself? How long should you go before you say, you know, I don't think it's what I don't think I'm treating what's happening to me? Sure. So if it starts to get worse, if if you're treating, you know, your cold or your allergy symptoms and the over-the-counter medicines you're taking just aren't helping and your symptoms are getting worse, you should probably, you know, come in and see a doctor or a provider. And are the tests the same when we're looking at the the flu? We take the the nasal swab. How does that work? Yes, so it is. It's a a long Q-tip, essentially. It's a little bit thinner, and it goes right into your nose, and they kind of swab it around, um, get lots of, you know, germs on there, and then it takes about 10 minutes, and it'll tell us if you have the flu, if it's type A, if it's type B. Now, they're not 100% accurate, so a lot of times, you know, we'll tell patients, even if this is negative, if you've been exposed to the flu and you have a fever and you have, you know, symptoms of the flu, we can still go ahead and and treat them anyways, but most of the time we will get a positive on that flu test. Which brings me to a little bit um, off the topic of just the flu, but especially at this time of the year, people are now starting to get out again. It's springtime. They're getting off the couch. They're coming out of the house. And maybe they're going to be doing a little bit more than they did when the snow was falling and no one felt like going out in the cold. So what happens when someone may overexert themselves, may feel a little bit not up to par? How do you know when it's time to take yourself to the doctor? So you really just kind of have to be in tune and and listen to your body. So, I mean, obviously it's normal if you haven't been outside in three or four months and you go outside and you cut the grass and pull weeds, you're going to be sore the next day. At least I would be. But... You know, if that soreness doesn't seem normal or, like I said, if it's kind of getting worse, not better in a couple days, that's when you definitely need to seek some help. And the same along the same vein, because I know I'm I'm pretty much a klutz. So as soon as it's time to go outside, I'm bound to find a rabbit hole or or uh, take a, a tumble as I'm out in the yard. So how do you know there when it's time to other than the fact that maybe there is a bone sticking out of your ankle that you should take yourself to the doctor and say again, oh maybe it's just a sprain. I'll sit down. But how do you know when it's time to go? and have someone look at something sure well that's a little bit a little bit more complicated um unfortunately you know sprains can sometimes hurt worse than you know breaks or fractures and same vice versa sometimes a break or a fracture people walk around on it for two weeks so it's pretty tough um to be honest but some of the biggest signs we look for are swelling um bruising um you know pain that's again kind of getting worse not better in a couple days um really there's no way to know um if something's just sprained or actually broken without an x-ray so that's probably a good idea because i can't tell you how many ace bandages (laughs) are still roaming around my house (laughs) sometimes it's not always the first thing that you go for well don do you have any other tips for us especially now that we're into the spring season and we've got the allergies and we've got other things that are coming out from your perspective we'd love to come and see you just to sit down and have coffee but how do you keep us 
out of your office? Sure. So definitely keeping up with frequent hand washing. I mean, that's one of my take-home points always. Um, Even in the summer when there's other viruses and germs being spread, not the flu, you know, definitely continue, you know, hand washing as much as possible. If you do feel like you're getting some allergy symptoms, try over-the-counter medicines. Um, Claritin, Allegra, Zyrtec, there's so many. Um, There's even nasal sprays, things like Flonase, um, to help with the symptoms. And then just kind of keep an eye on things. If it doesn't seem like it's getting better, you know, after a couple days, then definitely do stop in. You know, we would like to see you if, if you're not feeling better. But otherwise, you know, just, you know, keeping up with the common sense things like keeping everything clean. Um, if you do have allergies to um, indoor things like um, dust and um, pet dander, then, you know, you can start with a good spring cleaning. Try to get that stuff out of the house. And, you know, just kind of go from there. Thanks again to Dawn Webster, physician's assistant and assistant medical director at MedExpress in Pittsburgh for joining us today on Special Edition. I'd also like to thank Annette Calderon and Audrey Kunfer with the Collaborative Nursing Network of Northeast Pennsylvania and Cassandra Coleman and Dr. David Greenwald for being here as well. Thanks for listening to Special Edition a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. A production of Intercom Communications. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.